Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower clear. Welcome to Space 3D. Two well-respected aerospace organizations had experience making high-altitude pressure suits, but only a couple of engineers from a relatively unknown company known as ILC Dover had set their sights on developing a true spacesuit with high mobility for the Apollo space program. In his book, Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit, Avery tells the people's story of ILC and documents the technical details of the various models of the Apollo suit, including pre-Apollo suits. Bill retired in May 2019 from ILC Dover after 41 years of service. He was responsible for managing the test laboratories for the company where the spacesuits made for the space shuttle and then the International Space Station were tested prior to delivery. He also represented the company as their historian. Join co-hosts Tom Hill and me, Eleanor Rangers, for a discussion of the history of U.S. spacesuits from Apollo, the Space Shuttle, the International Space Station, and beyond with Bill Avery. Welcome to another episode of Space 3D. I'm Eleanor Rangers, and I'm here with my co-host, Tom Hill. Hello. And this evening, we have the pleasure of speaking with Bill Avery. We are delighted to be talking with Bill this evening, and I'll let him introduce himself in a moment. We're going to be talking about spacesuits tonight, at least U.S. Uh, US spacesuits and their history. And uh, Bill has uh, quite a lot of interesting things to regale us with this evening about that. So um, what I'm going to do is hand things over for the moment to Bill, just to introduce himself, his background, and then we can get into some questions. So Bill, welcome. Well, thank you, Eleanor, and, and pleasure to be with you and Tom, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so yeah, a little bit of background. I started with a company by the name of ILC Dover. Anybody who's familiar with spacesuits might recognize the name. Uh, ILC was responsible. Well, actually, they've had the contract to build the spacesuit, the extravehicular spacesuit, where you put it on and go outside for spacewalks. They've had that contract since 1962. So if you think about anybody that's been in the space industry that's held a contract that long, it'd be pretty tough to find any other company that could equal that or beat it. Um, so we won the contract in 62 for the Apollo spacesuit and then had that throughout all that period of Apollo and Skylab and, and ASTP. And then we were fortunate enough to also win the contract for the space shuttle extravehicular activity suit. And then, uh, which we're still doing today is, of course, it's for the space station when those astronauts go out and do a spacewalk in the suit. So I started with that company in 1977. So it was uh, post-Apollo. When I came there, they were kind of wrapping up Apollo. All the suits were kind of piled in the corner and their engineers were off building and designing and building the new space shuttle suit. And at that point in 1977, they were really in the design phase. I started doing, um, I was going to go get some money to go to college. The old story you hear a lot of people tell, you know, I just needed a job. And I was going to like major in psychology or some silly thing that I look back now and say, why would I have done that? But I, it was interesting at the time. But I was, you know, I was a, a child of the space age. I saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. I was in my early teens and I lived in Dover 
Delaware, which um, in that neighborhood, which is where the, the main plant for ILC Dover was, it was at the time called ILC Industries. And I actually had neighbors that lived in my neighborhood and kids that I went to school with whose um, parents were uh, one particular uh, kid. His father was an engineer working on the Apollo spacesuits when I was in high school. And I just thought that was so fascinating. I mean, to watch Neil Armstrong on the moon in a suit that my neighbor down the street was an engineer working on. And and then here years later, uh, not that many years later, I go to work for ILC and I eventually end up working in the test laboratory. So, uh, and I'm more of a mechanical type person anyway. I love mechanics and uh, I got involved in testing materials and um, I would work side by side with a lot of the engineers as they were developing the new space shuttle suit. And those were the same engineers that had designed and built the Apollo space suits. So, so I got to really know all those folks and, and, and not just the engineers, but what's fascinating about this business, and we can talk a little about that, is that, you know, this is one of the products that's handmade. And when I say handmade, to this day, it's, it hasn't changed a lot. It's a little more modern looking, but we have a big area where there's sewing machines and we have uh, ladies and it's almost virtually ladies. There's one, one gentleman that's working there now that does sewing. But they sit at the, the at the time it was Singer sewing machines. Now they have uh, some brothers and different uh, industrial machines that have changed over the years. They've gotten a little more modern, but but it really comes down to having these ladies be able to sit at these machines and hand. Well, I say hand sew. These machines are run very very slowly, so there's a lot of uh, manual input in putting seams, these material seams, under the sewing machine and putting it all together. So my job in the test lab was to test a lot of these seams and do a lot of the spacesuit testing, including the full-up testing of the spacesuit. So long story short, after all those years of working there and knowing a lot of the engineers that worked on Apollo, and I also had a lot of the records from the Apollo era, I was, I was fortunate enough to save those. I, I kind of looked at it and I thought there was a chance these could have been thrown out. So I salvaged a lot of the records and the company just let me have them. They gave me some file cabinets. I brought them home. And I've used those to write my book called uh, Lunar Outfitters, Making the Apollo Spacesuit. It goes into the details of the people who designed it, uh, the challenges we had during that period of the Cold War, uh, where we were trying to get into space, be the first on the moon and beat the Russians and all that. So it's, it was just a fascinating adventure for me. I just retired a couple of years ago. So I was there for about 41 years. And wow. um, so because... I, because I guess I was there so long, I, it, it fell on me to become the company historian. And I did a lot of work uh, answering questions, especially when the 50th anniversary of Apollo came up. Uh, the, a lot of the topics would center around the spacesuits. And when anybody wanted to know about it, they would come to me. And I'd, uh, the book really helped a lot. Writing that, it, it helped a lot of people understand the suits. And it helped me to kind of put it all together in, in one piece. And uh, so it's been a really neat ride, and I've really enjoyed it. Wow, that's great. Now, you know, as we were just talking before this, you know, just about historical preservation, you know, I, I know that you made the comment that when you kind of joined there, you kind of saw these old Apollo suits lying in the corner <laughs> collecting dust. Yeah. Um, have those been preserved? Uh, were, were those Are they are those still retained by ILC, or are they... Um, were they given to the Smithsonian? I'm just curious about yeah. what happened to those. Well, that's a good question. A couple of them were saved. There's a couple at the company now that are on display. When I first started there, there was a place where they had these stored 
and it was an air structure. It was an inflatable building. And every time there would be a bad storm, it would collapse. And I think over a period of time, I do recall uh, a guy back then who did maintenance stuff say that a lot of the stuff in that building was thrown away. So now those suits were uh, prototype development suits, but very significant in that in that respect. Um, but they weren't flown suits. All the flown suits are in the Smithsonian. All the significant suits that played a role in the Apollo program, including a lot of development suits, are in the Smithsonian. But however, there were a number of suits that were left at ILC that probably did get destroyed. And again, that was before my time where I had the wherewithal to salvage them. And I didn't even know that they were being thrown out. But there were a number that were hanging on racks when I first started working there. Um, and so, yeah, but, you know, that is of a lot of the um, industry, the industry in general, people were thr- when, when Apollo was over, it was time to move on to space shuttle and people were throwing things out. The government wanted us if the government owned uh, property in our company, like they would pay for tooling, and what have you. They would come to our plant at the end of Apollo and watch us. They wanted to make sure the tooling was destroyed. They didn't want it to fall in the wrong hands. So it got thrown into dumpsters and taken to the landfill. Wow. wow. Oh, it fits the whole Saturn V uh, mythology. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Wow. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, like I say, and, and I, I look at today's uh, suits, even the space shuttle suits and the space station now, the space station suits, there'll probably be a new contract award coming up in the next, uh, well, short period of time here. And uh, NASA's going to be looking at the next generation suit. I'll bet you that, you know, the people that are living this today are going to look at it and go, well, you know, it's not important now. We need to develop this next generation suit. And people will probably trash things that shouldn't be trashed. So uh, and the Smithsonian's doing a pretty good job of holding on to a lot of the uh, space shuttle and now space station excess suit parts. But um, they're having a tough time getting their hands on a lot of items because NASA still uses those parts for training down in Houston. And they use them up to the point where they're they're really beat up to to, you know, they're because these suits are reusable. So they'll keep right. using, them, using them over again. And, and they get to a point where I think, I don't want to speak for them, but I think in a lot of cases you might consider it trash and they throw these things away. They uh, downgrade and destroy it. When was the last full suit produced or are they still producing new ones? Well, so the Apollo suit, of course, was a uh, custom made suit. It was made for the astronaut and, uh, and, and that was it. And it was flown and brought back and put in the Smithsonian, basically. These suits today, when the space shuttle program came around, one of the lessons NASA learned was you can, you can make custom suits when you only have X number of uh, astronauts, as in the Apollo program. When they get to the space shuttle and now the space station program and what whatever's to come in the future, you're going to have a lot of astronauts. So you can't have this, this uh, mentality of building custom suits. So what we do nowadays and what we started with when the space shuttle era in the 19, late 70s, when they were designing the space shuttle suit, is to make components. So we don't build suits, per se. We build, they build parts to suits. So they'll build a boot assembly, a lower leg assembly, an upper leg, a thigh. There's a waist brief assembly. Um, there's a hard upper torso shell, which is fiberglass. And they come in a medium, large, and extra large. And arm assemblies. And gloves are custom made. That's the only part of the suit that's custom made. Uh, but so all these parts are made up and they're shipped down to Houston and then they're put on shelves and, and they can pick and choose the parts they want to assemble the suit so that when an astronaut 
has to wear it. It's sized for that person, whether it's a small female or a large male. You can mix and match these parts and make it work. And now up on Space Station, they have these suit parts up there that they can integrate on orbit. So while they're on the station, they can take the arms apart and they up to the right before the, the space station started at the end of the space. Well, toward the end of the space shuttle program, a few years before that, we started doing an enhanced suit where you could uh, take parts apart on orbit and make it so you could size it per astronaut. And that's the way it is on the space station today. Uh, but they are parts. So there's not really a suit that we build. Huh. Wow. Cool. And, um, and it was uh, made a lot of news when the wrong size was up there a little while ago. Ugh. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, well, so what happened there was they had the parts for the, the female astronaut that was going to go take the place. How was it? It was uh, the, the woman was going to do the spacewalk or she came in. was So the male was going to do the spacewalk. And it was a larger suit. And they had to switch over for her to do the EVA or extravehicular activity. And that would have been fine. They had the parts, but it takes like, a, I don't want, I'm not sure whether it's like six hours or a number of hours that are involved in turning a suit around and sizing it. And their schedule up on orbit didn't allow the six hours for that, for them to just turn it around. So they could do it, but it just didn't, it, you know, it didn't happen right away. So um, the lesson there is, you know, if, if it was an emergency, they would have had some problems, but it was, there wasn't an emergency, but the future suits are, you want to have a suit that can be turned around pretty quickly, parts integrated, you know, take them, screw them off, screw them back on, make it so these suits are interchangeable in size in a very short period of time. Yeah, made for a great Saturday Night Live sketch. Yes. <laughs> yep, that's usually what happens. <laughs> you know, there were rumors several years ago that a movie based on the ILC story was going to be made. And I think I also read that there were two producers that, had, I guess, bought the rights to, to your book and not only were going to be potentially using it as a basis for, I guess, a screen, you know, a script, but also potentially a Broadway production. Do you know anything about this? Yeah, I can't imagine I'm, Apollo on Broadway. That's, I know all about that. That's Kat Lickle and Joe, John Hoberg. And um, yeah, they uh, bought the rights to another book called uh, Fashioning Apollo by Nicholas DeMoncho. And he's a friend of mine. And he wrote the book uh, loose. It was kind of more, it didn't have the technical detail that I go into, but he talks about some of the history of the early beginning of the uh, company, which I also talk about in a little more detail. And Nicholas did a good job. Uh, so uh, John and Kat read the book. They loved it. They bought the rights to that. And then it got hung up in uh, one of the, I don't know how Hollywood works. It's very confusing, but it ended up on a desk somewhere in either Warner Brothers or one of Universal. And it didn't move. So, um, and then another producer came in and, and took over it. So I think Kat and John were a little frustrated and they still wanted to move on with it. So as I was doing my book, they bought the rights for a couple of years for my book and they've been trying, but it's, it's really, I think the Hollywood thing is very difficult to get your foot in the door and get people to buy into it. And, and I know that in, they're still probably trying to work that, but I'm not sure it's going to go anywhere. It, and, and my concern of course was that, this would get twisted around. There'd be a lot of liberties taken as they do in Hollywood mm -hmm. and become yeah. a kind of a goofy story. But the nice thing I have to give uh, Kat and John credit because they're very, very uh, concerned about making sure this story stays true to form because it, it, the story in itself is very interesting. 
it's a real story of an underdog company that uh, we were a spinoff. We were the government division of the commercial part of Playtex, which was doing bras and girdles. And everybody uh, gets this impression that, oh, they did bras and girdles and then they their engineers decided to do spacesuits. And it really wasn't like that. They they the division did bras and girdles, but then there was a industrial, the commercial the industrial division and government division, which uh, had a helmet contract at the time in the 1950s. A real sharp engineer by the name of Len Shepard uh, convinced the company, A.N. Spinell, who was the owner, that they should get in the business of taking this helmet that was being used for high altitude uh, aircraft that were f- going to fly at, at um, you know, higher altitudes and they needed pressure suits. And so this is post-World War II and we were developing these jet aircraft. So we had the contract for the helmet, but the space suit or the pressure suit was being built back then by David Clark. There was B.F. Goodrich and David Clark were really good at that. Mm-hmm. And um, Len Shepard looked at it and thought, if you think about what's interesting is, as I was writing the book, I was trying to put my head in, and I was born in 1954. So around that time, if you look back at that time period, people were talking, you know, if you turn on uh, TV, what there was a TV or uh, on radio, it was, they went from uh, Westerns to space. It was like, now you had, you know, War of the Worlds and different things that came about following that, that were more space themed. And so the thought was that, hey, you know, we're, we as a country are going to eventually have rockets that are going to go into space. And and Len Shepard had this vision uh, and knew that these suits that they were making for the high altitude airplanes weren't the same as what we would really truly need for space suits going out inside outside of a, uh, a spacecraft, opening a door and working in space or on the moon or whatever was down the road. So he convinced uh, A.N. Spinell, the owner of the company, to fund him so he could start developing a pressure suit that would work uh, in a space type environment. And and to everyone's credit, A.N. Spinell and Len Shepard, they pushed on with that and uh, truly invented the very first uh, purpose-built spacesuit. And that was by 1955. And then another gentleman by the name of uh, uh, George Derny comes on, and he was a World War II uh, pilot. He flew B-17s and was shot down over Germany. And George is a really colorful person, and and he's in my book there quite a bit because he was the brains of picking it up from uh, Len Shepard in, in about 1956, 57, 58 timeframe and really carrying this, this suit to the next level and getting the attention of the Air Force because if you think about it, before 1958 when NASA came into being, the Air Force was probably, to everybody's thinking, in the mid to, mid-50s to 56, 57, it was probably going to be the Air Force that was going to launch rockets with humans on board, and we were going to do all kinds of space missions until NASA came along. And so we were gearing this suit to pitch it to the folks at the Air Force, and they um, funded 50% of all our development during that time period and got this suit to where it was so that by the time the uh, uh, NASA comes on board and in 62, when Kennedy says, you know, we're going to go to the moon and they award a contract. We were right at the front of the line with the best suit that could do the job for futuristic, uh, futuristic space missions. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Because sort of the, the mythology is like, oh, you guys like came out of nowhere and it, it was like, oh, you know, they made bras and girdles and yeah. they had this inspiration, but I didn't realize that you really had this, this legacy already 
with the military. So you really were quite well equipped to jump into the fray, so to speak, yeah. by the early 60s. Yeah, the K-1 helmet and the MA-2 helmets were, if anybody knows the, the early helmets for the high-altitude uh, aircraft that were the jets that we were building, they were the very popular, very popular helmets. And so ILC was known for their ability to do that. But, you know, we were just building these helmets, which weren't, they were a challenge, but they weren't anything really uh, majorly significant as far as challenges go. And so when you get into the spacesuit business and NASA comes on board by, you know, in, in 58, but by 62, when they award a contract, they're looking at ILC who had George Durney and Len Shepard and a handful of other good engineers, but it was a small company. We didn't have systems engineering, a good quality system. Uh, configuration management was almost non-existent. And in my book, the, the picture I have on the cover of my book is a picture of George in the suit. And he has little markups all over the page of like, you know, what was done on a suit because he was developing the next suit and he needed to work from this picture. So that was his his way of doing configuration management. His and notepad. That's, yeah, that uh, notepad and pictures. He would take big pit photographs and mark up the photographs. And um, that's just not you know, NASA was like, no, we, we, we've got to work with organizations that are more aerospace uh, oriented and farther along than that. So we were relegated to be a subcontractor to Hamilton's uh, standard when the contract was awarded in 62. They really liked our suit and they liked the Hamilton standard backpack, uh, but they didn't feel that, and, and probably rightly so, I, I can't defend it because I think they were correct. ILC was not in a position to be a contractor at that point in time because we didn't have all that rigor that we needed. So, right, uh, the integrator. That's the that's the role I think you're talking about. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. So, well, there is the integrator part where where Hamilton is the integrator. So they build the backpack. See, their 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 um, expertise was designing that primary life support system. They were really good at that, and they still to this day they, they you know the ones used on space station are all Hamilton. And um, I think technology is going to have to drive new designs to that, but, uh, but they do a good job up to this point. They've done a great job. Uh, so yeah, they, they called an integrator, but they were, they, they really looked at it as Hamilton being the prime contractor to manage us because we didn't have the ability to do everything they needed. So they were like going to Hamilton and saying, you're going to be the prime, but you're going to have to have your engineers down at the ILC facility to watch over their shoulders and make sure they they do everything right. And we took offense to that. Um, yeah, we had the period from '62 to '65, '64 actually, and uh, we really floundered on it. We weren't developed. We weren't delivering what Hamilton and NASA wanted. And I worked with a fellow by the name of Bob Wise many years ago. He's since passed on, but he did tell me one time. And I've had it. I, I've had mixed confirmation on it, but I, I believe Bob when he told me, and I don't have any reason to disbelieve him. During that period of time, he said he and uh, a couple other guys were in the back room using some of that uh, contract money to develop their own idea of what the suit should look like without Hamilton knowing what we were doing. So <laughs> you, you know, you have two competing companies trying to uh, with one in charge, and it was really a battle. Um, you had a lot of egos involved. Uh, George Durney uh, had a big ego and uh, he, he developed that Apollo suit and he didn't want anybody telling him how to design that suit. That was his. And so there, there was just a, this period where nothing was, was happening. NASA was getting really uh, very concerned 
And Hamilton was very concerned because it was falling on them. They, they made them look pretty bad. And at that point, uh, Ham, uh, NASA was actually looking at uh, David Clark, who was doing the Gemini suits. And very, they were very serious about uh, maybe awarding the contract for the moon suits to uh, David Clark and just pulling it totally away from Hamilton and ILC. So Hamilton was getting panicky, and they decided to take on the whole suit development themselves. And NASA at that point said, look, wait a minute, this is getting out of control. We're going to open it back up for competition, and we'll do it fairly. Uh, so it'll be Hamilton, and it'll be David Clark. And then we came in and said our president at the time, uh, Finkelstein, um, he came in and said to NASA, look, give us a chance. We, wanna, we want a chance to give you the suit that, that you want. And uh, NASA agreed because I think there was a lot of issue about legal challenges and they and it was in their interest to try to open it up and get as much competition as they could. So they, they said to us, OK, that's fine, but you only have um, six weeks to do this. And so you have six weeks to produce a suit and um, and it's going to be on your own dollar. We're not giving you any funding for this. So if you have something great. And I think at that time, once we left the office, when Finkelstein walked out of NASA offices, I'm sure they were looking at it and going, well, we're not worried about them because they're probably not going to have anything. It'll be the Hamilton suit uh, working with uh, B.F. Goodrich, and then it'll be the David Clark suit. Well, lo and behold, uh, our engineers and our, our seamstresses worked around the clock for those six weeks, and they took that suit that Bob Wise told me we were working in the back room. And that's kind of why I believe him, because I don't think that we could have developed the suit we did in six weeks without having something going on in a back room somewhere because it was totally different in, in many respects than the suit we had been working on with Hamilton. And so we produced this suit. We put it in the competition. We were on time. We slipped a little bit on the time frame, but NASA was like, well, we'll give you a shot. So we ended up uh, putting in the competition. We ended up winning. So now we win the second competition. We won it in 62 with our suit. We win it in 65. And NASA looks at it and goes, okay, look, it is the better suit out of all the competition. We will award the contract, the prime contract to ILC, and then we'll award the prime contract for the primary life support system to Hamilton. And then there was talk. I didn't find a lot of detail on it, but uh, Westinghouse was going to be the integrator down in Houston to integrate the backpack with the suit. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Join us for part two of our interview with historian Bill Avery in our next podcast. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.